Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews. So you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. The Syrian civil war has been going on since 2011, and now we're in the midst of the worst humanitarian crisis, individual humanitarian crisis of the war. Yes, you heard that right. Uh, over the course of what has been one of the most brutal wars in modern history, there's still room for things to get even worse. And that's happening right now in the province of Idlib, which is what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hey. Morning. I mean, it's not a great morning, right? This isn't exactly my sunniest, happiest topic to talk about. Um, it is being dramatically undercovered by the international news, though. Uh, our sister podcast, Today Explained, will also be doing some stuff on Idlib today. But we are going to start by taking you to the conflict and helping you understand what what happened here, right? Why is the situation so bad? Is it How is it possible that after nine years of war, there really could be something that is worse as, as like an individual crisis than anything that came before that? So I can give the incredibly brief version of how we got here, and I think it helps set up the context. Sure. So what you need to know is that as the Syrian civil war went on, it looked for a while like Assad was losing a lot of territory. Uh, Russians and Iranians intervene. It helps Assad to turn the tide of the war. He starts to win, and he's taking area by area by area using a strategy which experts have described to me as uh, siege, starve, surrender. Basic Charming. Right. So basically bomb the crap out of an area, make it so people starve, can't go pray, ruin hospitals, whatever it may be. And so they either lose the will to continue fighting or start cutting deals with the government so they take over, and then they finally give up and government controls that territory. They've been going around region to region to region to region to region throughout Syria, and the one stronghold left, let's say, by stronghold I mean just where the government doesn't have control, is in Idlib, which is the northwestern province bordering Turkey in Syria. And what's been happening is in other areas of the country that the government has taken over, the folks that are able to either flee, they go to Idlib, or they've even been bussed out and taken there. So they're a smaller location of around a million or so people where Idlib would normally be has now swelled to roughly three million. And so if you think about it, you have sort of Turkey to the north. You have the Syrian government controlling the rest of the area to the you know south and east. 
and Assad and the Russians and the Iranians on the offensive. And so you really kind of literally, I mean, I hate to put it this crudely, but you have like fish in a barrel at this point. They're they're all so congregated and they have no help that it makes it so, you know, the Assad regime can really pull uh, not can really pull off its worst moment yet. Right. And I think that's a perfect way to set it up. And fish in a barrel is is horrific, but it's pretty accurate because in part, you know, we said that Turkey is up there to the north before during the war, Turkey was allowing in refugees. And so Turkey has a large, uh, pretty significant Syrian refugee population. However, they have closed that border. They're done. And they are actually, you might remember, we've talked about it, I think, previously on the show, um, that Turkey has, you know, now moved into Syria to try to push the Kurds out. Uh, and so Turkey is not only trying to not let any more refugees in, they're actually trying to get rid of the refugees they currently have and send them back into parts of Syria. So the people who are in Idlib province literally have nowhere to go. Um, they still are fleeing. There have been, I think, just in the past month alone, uh, as many as one million refugees produced. But again, where else can they go? They can go back into, you know, Assad-controlled territory, but most of these people have been fleeing the Assad regime for a very long time and are very ostensibly worried that they will be, you know, face consequences. They will be, you know, tortured and imprisoned and, you know, face consequences with the Assad regime in these other places. So they're stuck in this little area. And on top of it, as if that weren't bad enough— it's really, really cold. Yeah, it is winter. <laughs> it's winter. Uh, you know, where we are in D.C., it's like a balmy 60 degrees or something like that. Um, it, that's not even close. But okay, I have no concept <laughs> I walked to work today. Uh, yeah, same. Temperature. It's pretty it's cold. <laughs> okay, well, I didn't even wear a jacket. My oh point my is it's a lot colder there than it is here. And if you are already starving, you have small children living in these, you know, tent cities. You have uh, our colleague Jen Kirby has, a, a, you know, a really important piece on this, um, talking to, you know, families and people and doctors on the ground there. Um, in some places, families, up to seven families are living in a single home. Uh, so it's really, really scary. Uh, there was a horrible story just recently of a little girl who literally froze to death. Uh, so children, women are starving are freezing. It's a horrific crisis. And that's kind of scary to see in the fact that, you know, after nine years of civil war, we didn't think things could get worse, like you said, Zach. And here we are. Well, it, it speaks to a problem that we don't talk about enough when it comes to civil wars and humanitarian disasters, uh, specifically the one in Syria, right, which has been framed primarily around the global refugee crisis and Syria's contribution to uh, putting people without homes or, you know, where the country – they can't feel safe in their own country in other places. But now it, it highlights the, the the IDP problem, which is internally displaced persons, right? That's what we've been talking about here, people inside Syria who are forced to flee from their home and are resettling in Idlib. And this, this is a very persistent and, and frequent feature of international conflict now. And what, what happens is that when you don't get people taking in refugees, you get these places like Idlib that are overcrowded and underserved. And what's more, it's often harder for humanitarian organizations to operate there because of the security vacuum and the instability as compared to, uh, let's say, even in Turkey, right? The refugee camps are overcrowded. The conditions are really bad. The government it doesn't treat the refugees particularly well, the Syrian refugees there. But at least, you know, humanitarian organizations can operate there without – uh, fear of a government actively attacking them in the same way. 
right? Whereas that's just – that's not the case in Syria where there's – there are – in Idlib as well, like militant groups, not just rebels but also um, the HTS, which is the successor group to al-Qaeda uh, in the area. They sort of split. It's complicated. People argue as to whether they're secretly still in line. But they're there, right? And the situation is much more dangerous for humanitarian organizations. Plus now you have the Assad regime attacking. So service provision for these 3 million people who are super crowded in there is desperately difficult. This has just been – if we look at sort of the history of the Syrian conflict already, this has been – the problem throughout, right, is wherever the refugee population goes, well, actually, even if they stay where they are, the Assad regime makes it so hard to get those basic provisions that they have to go elsewhere, and then they also find that they can't get the provisions there as well. And this, again, goes back to that strategy. This is calculated, right? Let's be very clear about this. Yeah. The, the, this is p all part of a an actual strategy from the government in line with the Russians and Iranians that to make it impossible for the civilian population to rise up against Assad. It is done specifically to weaken uh, the population, to demoralize them, to kill them. <laughs> and uh, we shouldn't mince words about that and we shouldn't forget that, that this has just been what's been going on all nine years. It just happens that it has culminated in this um, horrifying sort of moment. I think what we – and so if you're listening to all this and you're wondering – well, is there a solution? Well, I guess there – actually, I would argue it's been way too late now at this point. I mean there are some things the United States or other countries could do at the moment. But um, Jen, remind me if I'm wrong, but uh, it seems like the, the parties that I most say over this, Syria, Russia, Iran, Turkey, aren't even close to making a kind of deal here. No. I mean we've seen over the course of, of the Civil War these attempts at ceasefires and, you know, talks, and they always break down, um, mainly because, you know, earlier Alex said, you know, that early in the Civil War, Assad was not doing well, but then Russia and Iran made a calculated decision to come in and help bolster the Assad regime. Uh, Iran sent their own, you know, senior leadership uh, of the IRGC. They sent, you know, militias, Hezbollah from Lebanon went in. Um, they sent soldiers from Afghanistan. They sent, you know, Russia sent in troops. So they are the reason that Assad has essentially been able to succeed. Now, earlier at that point, there was a time where, you know, at, at the time the Obama administration could have made a decision to go into Syria forcefully with U.S. forces and, you know, try to take a stand on the side of the rebels. They chose not to. They chose kind of a smaller intervention uh, essentially to try to train and, and, and equip some rebels to fight. But it was decided that we didn't want to get into another Middle Eastern war, and that was the decision that they made. And that has essentially remained the policy. Um, and we've even seen in the Trump era, Trump trying to withdraw even more, you know, the, the remainder of American troops who are there um, working with the Kurds to try to pull them out. Now, they're still there, but their job is not to fight the Assad regime. Their job is to guard the oil, and that's about it. And fight ISIS. And to fight ISIS, yeah. right. But it is very explicitly not to fight Assad. It is also not to defend civilians. It is not a humanitarian mission. This isn't some UN peacekeeping force, right? So they're— there's no political will on the side of the rebels, on anyone who cares about that side or who is trying to protect that side, or even the humanitarian, you know, kind of impetus of right to protect or responsibility to protect, right, um, to go in and, and, like, you know, create this, like, line of defense and defend civilians or, or even tell Assad you have to stop, 
right? You see the UN saying we're concerned. You see humanitarian organizations, of course, calling on the Assad regime. But there's no big government saying stop it or else. The big governments are on the side of Assad. And so it seems like absent any serious international political will to stop this, Assad is probably just going to take back Idlib and we're going to have horrific death, destruction, mayhem, and no one's going to stop it. just want to add one quick irony before we, we move on. The the U.S. mission, as, as Jen rightly pointed, is about defeating ISIS. And that's what we spent most of our time doing. That's what the current, you know, thousand or so troops left in Syria are doing. But it, actually, the sort of irony of that operation is it did make it easier for Assad to take over the rest of the country. There's a lot of fluctuation and, and you know, et cetera, throughout a lot of complications. But to put it in the most simple terms, ISIS was opposed to the Assad regime. And us getting rid of ISIS made it easier, not easy, but easier for Assad to, and this was true in eastern Ghouta, this was true in, in Aleppo and elsewhere, that the less Assad had to focus on fighting ISIS fighters or his forces had to focus on fighting ISIS militants, the more time he could focus on going after civilian populations and trying to recoup ground. I'm not saying that, like, it was a decisive factor, but that it was certainly a part of it. I don't know. That's kind of revisionist history, right? Because if you look at the... The the when ISIS was strong in Syria, and you look at casualty counts from both sides from conflict between those troops, Assad and ISIS largely ignored each other. There were very, very, very few clashes. They actually worked together in some places. Yeah, for sure. No, I yeah. know it's complicated. No, I know. I, yeah. But Alex is right in the sense that like not having to worry as much about also fighting this massive growing terrorist organization. It's also the case that Assad helped create. Said terrorist Correct. organization. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think, but the, the bottom line point is that the U.S. has never been there to fight Assad. We we right. never really committed to that fight, again, as a concerted decision. Now, we did see the Trump administration, uh, you know, punish Assad's regime sort of uh, by theme very targeted limited airstrikes on an airport where they believe that the planes had been used to do a chemical attack um, by the regime. The Trump administration, Donald Trump himself, said that, you know, he was very moved by pictures of children suffering from this gas attack that the Assad regime had done on civilians. He, you know, responded. But it wasn't like he he attacked, you know, the Capitol. It wasn't like he, you know, went after Damascus. He, you know, there were a couple little strikes on an airport. I don't think anybody was even killed. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty they sure also, they were. And, and the second strikes went after what the Pentagon told me and other reporters was the heart, quote unquote, of the chemical program, which right. like— all right. right. I, and I'm not but, even sure that's accurate. <laughs> right. But the, the point I'm getting at here, and you're right, you know, the point I'm getting at is that we never made the call. You know, we, we did say rhetorically Assad must go uh, under the Obama administration. We never did anything about that in a real serious systematic way that would have actually affected change, which means we are now nine years later in this situation. And I don't mean to say that this is the Obama administration's fault or the Trump administration's fault. To be clear, this is Assad's fault and Russia and Iran. But it's also fair to say that the United States, because, you know, for a lot of reasons, for the legacy of the Iraq War and Afghanistan, et cetera, did not want to get involved in another Middle Eastern war and made a decision, a conscious decision not to get involved. And this is partially the result of that. Yeah. And I, I, I have to say, it just terrible as it sounds in hindsight, that wasn't obviously the wrong decision, right? It is not clearly the case that the situation would be better in Syria today if the U.S. had intervened against Assad. Uh, I'm on record saying this at the time, so this is partially, you know, in defense of my own views. But if you, you know, and and 
It would have been difficult. It also could have brought the U.S. into conflict with Iran and Russia, which would have been seriously destabilizing. The amount of troops necessary and forces and commitment would have been really significant. Plus, then, who knows what would have happened with ISIS and, um, you know, the al-Qaeda affiliate that was there in terms of their ability to take over territory. Uh, Syria is a much uh, – was a, a much more difficult conflict in that respect than Libya, which the U.S. did intervene in, and the situation there is not great. I happen to have the very rare opinion that the Libya intervention was justified and the U.S. was also justified in not intervening in Syria uh, just because of differences between the two conflicts. Uh, but it, it's – so it's not – to me, it's not obvious that military intervention was the right course. That being said, the consequences of the civil war raging unchecked are undeniably horrific. Right. I mean, and, and there's pretty significant body of literature in political science that shows that in civil wars like this, which is what this started out as in Syria um, – you know, that, that civil wars end most quickly and most decisively when one side dominates the other side and wins rather than having two relatively equally matched parties who end up stuck in this protracted, prolonged conflict where it's just a churn of both sides fighting for decades. Um, so, you know, my former colleague at Brookings, Ken Pollock, has argued that because of this, we should have armed the the rebels to the point that they could have had dominance. We should have intervened to the point that we, the Americans on the side of the rebels, could have dominated Assad. However, what actually happened is the flip side, that Assad had Russia and Iran intervene and was able to then dominate the rebels to the point that it has, you know, stead steadily, gradually taken over to the point that it's just left in Idlib. But we are seeing that this is what happens when there isn't a protracted, prolonged, you know, equally, relatively equally matched fight when one side is just decimating the other. That, do, you know, that does mean potentially that it ended faster than it would have otherwise. But when you're talking about ending faster, it means that people are being obliterated. I think the bottom line is that there were no good answers in Syria. It was horrifying to begin with what Assad chose to do rather than stepping down and, and leaving power. Uh, he chose to launch an all-out war on his own country. And the result of that is horrific bloodshed. Nine years later, we're still there. The other thing I want to add is that that is 100 percent the right way to lay moral blame. The, the policy options available to the world are not limited to – intervene militarily or do nothing. Right. Right? Like there is— No, that's a good point. To me, this is um, the clearest dramatization of why uh, the the closure of borders to refugees in the wake of the 2015 refugee crisis from a lot of countries is so devastating and so harmful. Right? You, The U.S.—the amount of refugees the United States has started taking in uh, in the past few years is just astonishingly low. Uh, like historically low compared to what we've done basically throughout the modern history of the United States. And the U.S. isn't the only country, uh, advanced democracy, that's closed off its borders to refugees, right? Increasing service provision for people in refugee camps, increasing aid to uh, IDP assistance, working diplomatically with, let's say, Russia to try to carve out areas more aggressively where you could have international service providers come in without attacks, right? There are lots of things the U.S. could do. I think the obvious one is to let in more Syrian refugees, uh, at least temporarily, unless they want to go home, because ultimately most refugees do, in fact, want to go back to where they're from. They don't want to just live in another place. But the fact that we've done the exact opposite at this point in time, to me, is it's just obviously morally indefensible. And it's not just uh, – I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the Trump administration has specifically cut Syrian refugees in particular, arguing it's a terrorism threat, which is, is – ludicrous. Uh, yeah. 
Correct. And offensive, actually. Uh, oh, beyond offensive. Um, but anyway, but but Europe, too. You know, Europe made an agreement with Turkey. Um, it, it's basically trying to say, like, we will take, you know, some of your refugees. But Europe doesn't want refugees. We have seen, because of this crisis, Europe shut down its borders. You saw, you know, Zach, you reported on the ground from Hungary, with you know, building an actual wall to keep people out, shooting people who are trying to, like, cross. Um, you know, you've seen the UK, you know, Brexit. It was in part because of this fear of refugees and this fear that, you know, as being part of the EU, that, you know, Turkey was making this agreement with Europe to send refugees and that those refugees could then make it into the UK. You know, we've seen Europe shut down its borders. Now Turkey has shut down its borders and is trying to get rid of the refugees it does have. So everyone is just literally rejecting any possible, like, humanitarian way to help. Again, not even militarily, like the actual just good human thing to do, just take in people who are being bombed. Everyone's just like, nope, sorry, screw you. And that's that's the situation that we're in. And it's it's horrifying. Just to be blunt about it, I think there's going to be people dying in Idlib today, tomorrow, and days from now that could have lived a happy life in Europe or in the United States, period, uh, period end of story. And, and just on the humanitarian bit, um, I mean, I have covering Syria for so long, I have talked to a lot of humanitarian organizations, and, and in every city where this has happened, Aleppo, Gouda, or the suburb of, of eastern Gouda, wherever it may be, um, this is the exact moment where they just, they like, they put their hands up, not out of frustration, well, yes, out of frustration, but not like out of surrender. It's just, they they need to be able to operate safely, and they just don't have that opportunity. I mean, the convoys that go in, it's a very dangerous mission, and, and when bombs drop so much, and the, the, you know, the airstrikes drop so much, it's just impossible for them to, to do what they need to do. I mean, I've talked to so many humanitarian workers that, like, are on a hill overseeing, like, the kinds of, of bombing happen, and they want to go in, and they want to rush in, and they can't, and um, they have they literally watch people die in front of them. It's uh, it's a horrifying thing. One thing I want to add just quickly before we move on, uh, we we talked a lot. I particularly have talked a lot about Europe and and the U.S. failing in this. I also want to make a quick point here that tends to get overlooked almost always in these conversations. There are other parts of the world that could also take in refugees that yep. absolutely flat refuse sure. to. Japan, for instance, um, a lot of East Asian countries flat refuse to take any refugees of any significant number. Um, they also could do that and have traditionally refused and are not. So there are a lot of wealthy countries in the East. It's not just Europe and the United States, although we have traditionally been the ones who have tried to, to step in and do this. Um, the fact that we are not, I think, is a huge moral failing. But it's also on other countries that could actually do things, that have the wealth, that have the ability, and are flat refusing to do anything, which is also morally reprehensible. So we're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back, we're going to zoom out a little bit from the humanitarian stakes of the conflict to the geopolitics that help us understand how we've gotten to where we are. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Sure, a good souvenir is always fun. But it's the experiences that people love the most about traveling. When you get back home, that t-shirt might fade and that snow globe might break, but it's those once-in-a-lifetime memories that will last. Viator is a website and app where you can book travel experiences like architectural sightseeing, snorkeling excursions, sunset cruises, and so much more. With Viator, you can reserve everything from simple tours to thrilling adventures with over 300,000 bookable experiences in 190 countries. Whether you're a foodie, a history buff, or an adrenaline junkie, there's something for everyone. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you can have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. 
When you book a travel experience with Viator, there's always flexibility and support with free cancellation, payment options, and 24-7 service. Make memories that will last forever with Viator. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, uh, listeners. We are talking about the situation in Idlib, and we've been trying to dramatize the humanitarian stakes to you to help understand why things are so bad there uh, and and what it's like. But now I want to zoom out to a different aspect of the why question, which is uh, that I, I was sort of talking a little bit at the end of the last section about how there could have been or could still be some kind of political settlement uh, that could help ease the suffering there. But there have been efforts at that. Uh, tried recently, and they've broken down. They've, and that's part of why the situation here is so bad. So specifically, there was there was an understanding between Russia and Turkey that seems to have been deep sexed recently. So, in sort of a grander scheme, Turkey, Russia, Iran to a certain extent have all been working out. Okay, what to do about Syria? How do we we solve this? And one of the ways they've been trying to do this is by setting up some ceasefire, some sort of breaks from each other that could possibly then lead to peace. This has been done in Idlib especially since like eh, roughly May 2017, but uh, really became, got a deal in September 2018. And the the real details of this are, are tricky, but in a, in a sense, the Assad side had to kind of hang out on one in one area. The anti-Assad side had to hang out in another area, and they just really couldn't fight each other. Um, until it started to break. And this has been part of the problem is that these ceasefires are really hard to control because as much as Turkey may not want a terrorist group to attack Assad's forces, they, Turkey doesn't control them. They're just going to go ahead and do it um, and, and vice versa. So this has been part of the issue is that even when there have been quote unquote genuine attempts at a peace, they continue to falter and they fall by the wayside. And so, so one could at least see why any sort of attempt at even smaller deals has been failing. Uh, it's just incredibly hard to make these things stick. And even sort of at a grander level, they've been looking at a, a, a peaceful resolution to the conflict where there were talks, you know, maybe Assad might take only, might only control part of the country and then, you know, rebels would take their own part. But it's been pretty clear really from the start that Assad wanted the entire country. And then, like, why wouldn't he, especially when he got Iranian and Russian help, which we'll talk about why they care so much in a second. But why wouldn't he want to get back the country that he used to lead, the country that his father used to lead? Because he can, because he has the kind of support and no one's really stopping him. And so when you kind of have that force of will from Damascus, when you have that firepower and even smaller deals on the ground just continue to fail – you don't really have any other way. The momentum is only going one way. It's only going toward a situation like Idlib. Yeah, there's a book I think that really um, 
the title of which, and it's a really good book, but that really kind of puts a point on this. And the title is Assad or We Burn the Country. And it's describing the Assad regime. I just, I love that quote. Yeah. I, mean, I, I, I mean, I hate right, it. It's, yeah, it's yeah, horrifying. Yeah, yeah. But, but, it, right, but it really puts a, yeah. a, a fine point on where Assad was from the very beginning. Um, like I said before, you know, we've seen in Egypt, uh, you know, the revolution has not gone well. Um, but you know, Hosni Mubarak, who died this week, actually, uh, stepped down from power after, you know, what, 18 days, something like that, uh, of of revolution, of, of protests in his country. Um, you know, in Tunisia, we saw an actual transition to a, you know, relatively, uh, you know, young but still relatively stable and growing democracy in Tunisia, right? This civil war did not have to go this way. Assad made a decision to wage war on his own people. Uh, he let very dangerous criminals out of jail to try to make the opposition look like it was violent. He made very concerted steps every single step of the way to turn this into a bloody civil war. And, you know, just to kind of get back to the geopolitics, just so so everyone's clear, I, this is really complicated. So I know if you kind of forget who's on, on what side, Turkey has— traditionally opposed uh, in this war. The Assad regime has supported the Free Syrian Army, the, the kind of rebel groups, um, and been on kind of the opposite side of Assad. However, you know, it shares a border with Syria. So it, it has also tried to, you know, make these peace agreements, tried to figure out a solution that wouldn't cause, you know, massive refugee flows into its, into it, you know, over its borders, into its country. So Turkey's played a kind of a, an interesting role. And right now, you know, we actually have seen, you know, like I said earlier, Turkey come into Syria and actually start an offensive um, in the Kurdish-held areas. And Syrian fighters backed by Turkey just took over a small town in Idlib. So even just this week, we saw Turkey make an announcement saying they will not take a single step back in Idlib. And they are going to push against Assad troops and try to reestablish or control their the Turkish-held military outposts in Idlib. So we actually have Turkey— and the Syrian forces starting to potentially come into a clash. So and again, we, uh, now we have Russia also I, I, there. I'm genuinely confused by this. Um, what What is Turkey's reasoning here? Like, why do they want to hold this territory? I mean, I get why they would intervene against the Kurds in northern Syria. We've talked about this on the show before, but in case, you know, you don't follow geopolitics of Syria as closely as we do, there's a large Kurdish minority in Turkey that has long wanted a degree of larger autonomy and potentially independence. In northern Syria, there's a Kurdish area and Kurdish-populated area that set up its own state called Rojava. The Turks see this as a threat that might cause their Kurds to secede, so they have intervened right. against Rojava and fought with the Kurds there. But why would they fight Assad, if they're not obviously not going to attempt a full-on military intervention to topple him, what's the point of holding these areas? Is it about the Kurds? Yeah, they want a buffer zone. Well, yeah, but very specifically, they want that buffer zone to send Syrians back to. The bottom mm -hmm. line right now, why Erdogan is taking these steps, is it really he really wants to get rid of this huge Syrian refugee population inside Turkey's borders. And so one of the main justifications for this incursion into Syria um, was— one, to, you know, kind of destroy this Kurdish-held area so that it wouldn't become this sovereign state on Turkey's borders, but also to create this area that was a safe zone where it could then send Syrians back to. Now, Erdogan is saying, look, you know, we, we want to ensure the return of these people to their homes, right? These people are Syrian. So in some respects, um, you know, we have a, a piece on, on the site on Vox that talking to 
refugees inside Turkey who are Syrian. And it's very divided. Some Syrians are actually really supportive of this. So like, yes, we would like to go home. Thank you. Uh, We're not Turks. We never wanted to live in Turkey. We are literally Syrian. Can we please go home? Um, And so some are actually supportive of this this Turkish move to say, look, that would be great if Turkey could go in and push back Assad and create this zone where we can go in and go back home. And yeah, we might not be from this part of Syria, but at least it's Syria. Um, But some are also deeply terrified that this is just essentially an excuse to send them back into a war zone, that it's not going to be safe, that Turkey's just trying to get rid of them, um, that they're going to face, you know, all kinds of violence from the regime, from other groups operating. Um, But that is primarily what this is about. It's partially about the Kurds, but it's also about Turkey is very concerned about having, you know, this Syrian population. It's not just because they're Syrian. It's that, you know— it is difficult. We shouldn't, you know, gloss over the fact that it is difficult to have to feed and, and house and take care of refugees. Like, I get that. It's, it's a, you know, difficult for the Turkish economy, which is also suffering. So Turkey's trying to find a solution. Um, whether this is the appropriate solution is a different question. Um, but they are essentially trying to push back the Syrian forces so that they have a place to send these Syrians back to. But just to be clear, I mean, I, I, I don't want to minimize the, the Kurdish aspect of this because even in January 2018, the, the Kurds had advanced in a place called Afrin, which is actually north of Idlib. And for multiple reasons, the U.S. actually had a role in this. Basically, the the the, the U.S. had basically said that they would continue to, like, keep troops indefinitely to fight ISIS in that area. And the U.S. troops were, were helping the Kurds. And on top of that, you know, we would be providing training and all that. And the, the, the Turks opposed that policy and purposefully – invaded and started killing Kurds right. at that time uh, to create a roughly 19-mile buffer zone. So I don't doubt that, like, the Turks are saying, yeah, we want to create this buffer zone. We can return Syrians there. That may be absolutely part of it. But I do believe that the Kurdish motivation still is a, is perhaps the biggest factor here because they could – even to the eastern part of the country, they're trying to create that buffer too. Like, that seems to be Turkey's big interest here is to put some space – between the Kurds in Syria and the Turkish border. The consequence of this policy, though, the motivation seems to be twofold in the way that you two are describing, but the consequence seems to be like the growing potential for a clash between Turkey and Syria more directly. I mean, they've yes. fought Assad and the Turks have fought before. Yes. But, and Russia. And Russia, and Russia, right, which is – and Iran. Yeah. And let's be clear. When we talk about a clash between Turkey and Russia, that's not nothing. Remember – Turkey is a NATO ally of yep. the United States. Uh, you may remember that under Article 5 of the NATO charter, uh, an attack on any one NATO member is attack on all members and has to be treated as such. So the concern here is that if Russian troops in Syria were to launch an attack on Turkish troops, what does that mean? Do we just kind of look the other way? And so far, these kind of little skirmishes, we essentially have been doing that. Uh, You know, U.S. and Russian troops have come into a bit of crossfire with each other. It hasn't led to World War III. But it's a very serious fear that we are a close ally, treaty ally of Turkey, and that they are coming up against Russia. And that is really terrifying because it could – I don't want to be, you know, fear-mongering. I'm not saying that we're going to be in a full-on World War III – but it's not not there, right? That tension is there. And these are sorry, these were the considerations that the U.S. was worried about. Right. Like even um, you know, even when the Turks were going after the Kurds, like that was two U.S. allies going at each other, right? Right. And the United States didn't really necessarily know what position it had to take or what it could do. Uh, and of course, if I'm, as you said earlier, is that correctly? Like if the U.S. went in and intervened, 
pretty intensely. They could get into a bigger fight with Russia, in which case we do have that sort of World War III fear. So there was a, there was a lot of – when you were thinking from the American side, if you were wanting a military intervention, it was not as clear. And, right. and there was like, well, who do we help first of all? And then even if we do help, could we get into something bigger? There, there's a lot of complication here and, the, and there still is to the point that it's just it's, – it was never a straightforward mission. It was kind of either had to do it and, and suck up the consequences, which is a massive risk for any administration to take or or not. This is one of the earliest episodes of Worldly. We actually talked about this. Um, and, and one of the issues was kind of like, you know, yes, America had all these different kind of cross purposes, right? And all these different kind of things they had to consider before going in or whether to go in. Russia and Iran had a lot fewer. Exactly. And we're able to just go, eh, we don't really care. We're just going to go in. Um, and so part of it came down to who cares about Syria more in terms of uh, – its importance to their interests, right? And the U.S., you know, could have said it's important enough to us to risk that. Syria is important enough that, you know, the pro-democracy movement, the uprising is more important. Humanitarian intervention is more important. Whatever that interest may be is more important than these other considerations. Therefore, we will go in, you know, hardcore and support the rebels and push back Assad. Um, they didn't make that consideration, but Russia and Iran on the other end did. They said, look, this is important enough. We are willing to risk this. Uh, and they seem to have made the correct bet that the, the U.S. didn't care enough about Syria to do that. And so that's why, again, we have Russia, Iran, and Syria and this kind of trifecta that made it essentially a juggernaut being able to push in, whereas America had all these different things pulling at it and not enough political will or interest in Syria as a strategic stronghold or any other reason, even humanitarian, to, to go in and, and push back against that. But sorry, just to be clear, what were the Russian and Iranian interests? I mean, look, they had a variety of different reasons for wanting to do this, right? Like I would uh, – on the Iranian side, Syria is, is arguably their most important state ally in the entire area. Right. Iraq is kind of unstable and not an obvious ally in a lot of different ways. And Hezbollah is yeah. a hot mess in Lebanon. Right. But they need Syria sort of geographically to be able to funnel arms to its proxies uh, near the near the Mediterranean. So that is its ally Hamas in Gaza and then Hezbollah in Lebanon. Right. It needs – Iran sees those as vital parts of its power projection Middle East strategy and it needs an ally in Syria to more effectively resupply and work with these groups. So uh, the toppling and even like the installation of an anti-Iranian regime in Syria would be threatening in and of itself, not just because it cut itself off from proxies but then because Iran would have to deal with yet another hostile state in the region more aligned with its enemies, the Saudis. Right. So for Iran, this was a gigantic deal. And for Russia, Syria is is obviously less important, but similarly, it is the last kind of Cold War vestige ally of the former Soviet Union that's been hanging around in the Middle East. There's a naval base uh, that the Russians yeah. are allowed to use there, and they've just generally enjoyed close relations with Syria since you know the fall of the Soviet Union. It's it just sort of this patron relationship continued. So for the Russians, this was extremely important as a matter of international prestige and sort of pure strategy. For the Iranians, it seemed like a, like a massive, massive immediate threat. It was neither of those things to the United States or the rest of the international community. It was to um, the Saudis and to other different anti-Iranian groups in the area that funneled a bunch of money and arms to the Syrian rebels. But those efforts – uh, obviously have not been successful when compared to the massive direct intervention 
from Iran and Russia. And now that's brought us to the point where we may be on the brink of some kind of direct conflict with the NATO ally, which, you know, I, you know, I was thinking more about the humanitarian stakes when we started this episode, Jen, but bringing that up, boy, I'm <laughs> even more concerned than I was beforehand. Yeah, I mean, it's also important to, you know, we, we mentioned this earlier, but you know, early on in in the uprising in Syria, Assad made a decision to let out a lot of hardened criminals, including, um, you know, Sunni jihadist terrorists. Uh, and that was a strategic decision. That wasn't like an oopsie, we just lost the keys to the jail and they, they, they broke out. Um, that was a concerted decision to make the opposition look like a Sunni jihadist movement that was, you know, a terrorist movement that was trying to take over. Um, the Assad regime is Eloi. It's a kind of a branch sect off of Shia Islam. Um, but that was also a a smart strategic decision on Assad's part in the sense, I don't mean a good decision, but I mean from his perspective, from the Assad regime's perspective, to make it look like we are fighting against these extremist, you know, Sunni extremist Islamist terrorists. So if you want to get Iran involved, if you want to get other countries involved, you know, hey, we're fighting against ISIS here. We're fighting against these bad guys here. We're fighting against al-Qaeda here. You know, and if Iran is going to, you know, not want to have, you know, in its neighborhood a, a country that is being ruled by Sunni, you know, Islamists, it is a very serious thing. So that was another reason to kind of that helped kind of get Iran a little freaked out uh, and say, okay, well, you know, if, if they're, you know, framing this in in more kind of religious terms, although it's super complicated, but framing this in that way helped Assad kind of show, you know, hey, and, and Assad even tried to use that in Russia to some extent to try to get the Americans on, on their side. Like, look, we're fighting terrorists. We're the good guys. We're doing the same thing you guys are, right? Like, we're just fighting these Islamist terrorists, um, which uh, they were to some degree, and to some degree they were also just trading oil back and forth with them. Uh, and so that was another kind of impetus that helped them sell this war. And, and honestly, this brings us back to the actual people suffering in Idlib uh, because one of the justifications for the campaign, the indiscriminate bombing, going after hospitals, all this, um, has been we are fighting terrorists. But And yes, they have killed some. But let's be clear. The people suffering are innocents. They are regular civilians who are getting – who are literally being bombed to death, who are being starved to death, who are freezing to death, um, all under this justification and all under these strategies. Um, you can quibble with America's reasons to get involved, not get involved. I think what everyone can agree with is that we did not have to get here. We just did not have to be in the situation. Um, it was where the war was heading. That is horrible to say. Um, and it is horrible for the people who are suffering. And and we're thinking about them. We hope that they get better. We, we hope that somehow the situation gets better, although um, for following the trajectory of this conversation, sadly, it doesn't look like it will. Uh, we're going to leave you there, but I want to encourage uh, all of our listeners to, if you're if you're concerned about Idlib and what to do with people there, uh, look into wherever you live in whatever country you're in, uh, donations to the Red Cross Red Crescent and its operations in Syria, to international humanitarian uh, assistance, other organizations, including refugee organizations and refugee repatriation in your country. Oftentimes, local community organizations will do that. My synagogue has sponsored a refugee family to come into the United States 
states, though it's been difficult with the Trump administration's constraints. Uh, but the U.S. is not the only country that we have listeners, and obviously. And so wherever you are, if, if you're moved by what you've heard today, please do what you can to try to help these people. And we can provide some links in the show notes to some of the, the prominent uh, aid organizations operating on the ground in Syria. Uh, we want to thank our engineer, Malachi Brodus, and our producer, Bird Pinkerton, for getting uh, this all out to you all. And we want to encourage you to rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot, y'all. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil Patel, host of Decoder, my show about big ideas and other problems. Right now on Decoder, we're doing a mini-series about one of the biggest ideas that's creating some of the biggest problems around, generative AI. Our series dives deep into some of the most pressing issues surrounding generative AI, with expert Verge reporters covering the cutting-edge frontier of the industry. How could copyright lawsuits completely upend large language models and image generators? How big a problem is AI-generated misinformation for the 2024 election? And what kind of impact are AI chatbots having on human relationships? Decoder's AI series will help you understand what's going on, why, and where it might go from here. Tune in every Monday and Thursday for new episodes of Decoder wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow.